there should be nothing easier or more natural for the believer to do than to pray. A child talking to his father, what could be easier? But in actual fact, many believers find prayer difficult. Indeed, so difficult do some find it that they are tempted to give up praying completely. Rather than prayer being a wonderfully rewarding experience, they find it to be a source of disappointment and discouragement. And there could be many reasons for this, of course. Jesus himself said in John 15, for instance, ask what you will and it will be done for you. And they've prayed. Oh, how they've prayed. But there's no answer. Nothing happens. And doubt and disillusionment results. Till finally they turn their back on prayer altogether. Now since that is so, during this week and the next time I'm with you, because yes, I am with you again, I thought I would take my courage in both hands and address some of the questions that arise as a result of difficulties in prayer and see if the New Testament can provide any answers. And I suppose the most common response in the mind, if not on the lips of the believer when he is encouraged to pray, is, but why should I pray? And of course, the simple and direct answer is that we pray because God has commanded us to. Pray without ceasing, says God. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And if God tells us to pray, then that is reason enough for praying. But often when a believer asks, why do I have to pray? The objection has behind it a difficulty in, un in understanding how prayer works. For example, their difficulty may arise from a seeming contradiction in Scripture. He may say, look, I've read in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, your father knows what things you need of before you, before you ask him. And then in Philippians 4, I also read uh, that we should let our requests be made known unto God. Now, which is it? Does he know or do I tell him? And if he knows already, why do I have to pray to tell him? Why doesn't he just give me what I need because he loves me without me having to ask? Why do I have to pray? Doesn't God know? Doesn't God care? An illustration might help. Here's a mother with a six-year-old son. She knows already his needs and his desires. She's perfectly familiar with them. And more often than not, she provides for his needs, for his desires, without him ever having to ask. She, she, she provides for his food and clothes. She cares for his health and his well-being. 
But sometimes she deliberately waits till her son comes and asks before giving him the thing he wants. Now, why does she do that? She does it so that he will not take his mother's kindness for granted. She does it so that he will appreciate both what is given and the mother who gave it. For in coming to his mother and asking for the treat and receiving it from her, the son receives much more than the treat itself. He also receives an understanding of what a mother is. That a mother is someone who loves, for him, who loves him and cares for him. And that impression of his mother will live with him throughout his life. Long after he has ceased to ask her for treats. And in days to come, he will remember his mother. Now old and grey. And his heart will go out to her in gratitude. As he remembers the wonderful mother she has been. And it all began when he came to her as a six-year-old and asked her for ice cream. And what of God? While it is true that God, like that mother, provides often for our needs without us having to ask him, yet there are times when God requires us to come to him and ask him for what we want even though he knows full well we need it. And he does so lest we should take his gifts for granted and value neither the gift nor the giver. So the reward of prayer, the real reward, is not what we receive as a result of our prayer. The reward of prayer is God himself. Is fellowship with God. For astounding as it may seem, Almighty God wants above all else to have fellowship with us. So God asks us to pray. For in praying we have fellowship with him. And whether we realize it or not, fellowship is the glory of prayer. Now what we've been thinking about, the reward of prayer, is beautifully illustrated in John's Gospel. Jesus is on a journey. He comes to Bethany. And two sisters, Mary and Martha, invite him into their house. And Martha immediately sets about getting dinner ready for their important guest, working her fingers to the bone, no doubt. However, her sister Mary leaves Martha to get on with the work and sits quietly at Jesus' feet, listening to his words and his teaching. And this goes on for some time, till finally Martha comes to Jesus and complains at the unfairness of it all. However, Jesus' response, I imagine, surprised Martha. For he says, Martha, you are busy doing the things you think are important. You do what you consider the most important thing with your time. But Martha, 
There is a more important thing than making dinner. There is a more important thing than working for me. It is sitting with me. It is talking with me. It is fellowshipping with me. And Mary knows it. And I'm so glad she does. Which do you think Christ would have preferred? A five-course meal beautifully prepared with no time to talk or a simple meal enjoyed in fellowship with the, with the sisters. There is a lesson in all this for us, is there not? We believers are on a journey to heaven and home. When we get there, we will have all eternity to talk with Jesus. But until then, while we are still on the journey, we need to sort out what life's priorities are. We can get consumed with life's responsibilities and duties. And can I whisper it? We can get consumed even with life's service for God so that we have no time to come quietly and sit at God's feet in fellowship. Can't you see Jesus shaking his head sadly and saying, Martha, 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 just stop all the work. Stop all the running around for a moment. Yes, it's all important, but just stop. There is a better part. Come, sit with me. Let's talk. Let's fellowship one with another. Come, sit with me, Martha, for I have many servants, but very few friends. So why should I pray? I should pray because prayer is the gateway to the most precious thing of all, fellowship with God. Then there's another question we ought to consider. Why does God so often make me wait for an answer to my prayers? Sometimes for years. And why is it that sometimes he never answers at all? I'm sure we've all asked that question. Perhaps we may begin to gain an understanding if we listen to the prophet Isaiah as he speaks to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 40. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Or, as it can be translated, they shall change their strength. These words were spoken to the Jewish exiles while they, were, while they were waiting for God to answer their prayers and keep his promises. God had promised that one day he would have mercy upon them and restore them to their land and to their temple. And when reading these promises, the exiles had been encouraged to call upon God to fulfill his promises now. But years went by and God did nothing. Why had God done nothing? Why had he not fulfilled his promises? God gave his answer to the exiles through Isaiah. Yes, he would fulfill his promises one day. Yes, 
He would fulfill his promises, but in the meantime, he was asking them to wait upon the Lord. Or as it could be translated, to trust in the Lord. To hope in the Lord. And hope means not getting it now. It means hoping for something you do not yet see. It means being prepared to wait for God's time. But many of the Jewish exiles were finding it very difficult to wait. To hope. To trust. And they responded in the words of Isaiah 40, 27. My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. They cried in anguish, God is no longer interested in my case. He is not taking any notice of my cry. Why is God not answering, they cried. And the delay compelled them to consider the character of God. Compelled them to ask the question, could they trust God? Compelled them to ask the question, who is God? And again, it's the prophet Isaiah who answers their question and tells them who God is. Isaiah 40, 26 says, Isaiah, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, none is missing. And as Israel hears Isaiah's voice, the nation begins little by little to understand who God is. To grasp the greatness of God as creator and the sustainer of everything. And as this realization grows that God is creator and sustainer of all that is, as this realization grows, the nation strength and confidence in God grows also. So that they come to trust him in spite of his silence. As, the, as this realization grows, though the nation's circumstances don't change, their strength and trust in God does. Now what of, what, what of us, what are we as believers to make of this fact that in our experience often we cry to God in an agony of despair and confusion. Though we often plead for God to act on our behalf, what are we to make of the fact that so very often God does nothing? He doesn't answer. He remains silent. Of course, the fact is that God could grant the believer every request he makes. He's powerful and resourceful enough to do it but often he doesn't grant a request or he delays granting it. And of course, that can be for a, for a number of reasons. It could be that God knows that what you've asked for is not good. Therefore, he doesn't answer. But it could be that while to grant the believer's request could be for his good, God is working towards an even greater good which will be achieved by God's refusal or delay 
in granting his request. Let's consider how this second reason could work. We need to understand that God has designed a great and glorious future for each of his children. Both in this life and in the life to come. Yes, these little bits of clay are destined for greatness. God has a work for each believer to do in this life. We each have our God-appointed role in the work of extending God's kingdom in this present world. A work that only you and I can do. And in the life that is to come, we are to reign with Christ forever. Who knows, perhaps you or, you or I will be called upon to rule a galaxy or two in his eternal kingdom. But if we are to rule then, we need to grow up now. If we are to achieve our goal under God, if we are to reach our potential, we will have to grow up. And if we are to grow up, we will have to leave the nursery and move into the schoolroom. You see, in the nursery as spiritual infants, all our needs are met. All our wants are supplied when we ask for them. Our faith is never tested. For we are taking our first steps as new believers. But as we move into the schoolroom, God begins to deal with us. God begins to educate us. And an integral part of our education is that we get to know God. That we get to trust God. Even when we don't understand what he is doing. Or what he is not doing. There will be greater challenges ahead. And in the measure we learn to trust God now, we will be able to trust God then. And unanswered prayer is one of the tools God uses to teach us to trust him. Here's a believer. He's in great difficulty. There's a great need of that, there is no doubt. He calls on God in prayer to hear him, to answer him, to rescue him from his difficulty. But God does nothing, it would seem. God is silent. Now, what is the believer to make of God's silence? The fact that God appears to have ignored him, not answered his prayer, is he to conclude that God doesn't care after all? And the believer stands at the crossroads. Will he trust God or will he not? Perhaps you found yourself at that very crossroads. There's one vitally important thing we need to understand and it is this. God may not have given me what I asked for in prayer. But he is not silent. For God does two things at the moment that I stand at the crossroads. First, God issues a challenge. God says, it is true that I haven't granted your request. 
that you are in the same situation as before. You don't understand what I'm doing. It even seems to you that I don't care. But in the darkness, in your confusion, do you know me well enough to trust me? And God issues that challenge because in rising to that challenge is how the believer grows up. Secondly, God offers evidence to the believer. Yes, although God challenges the believer to trust him even when he doesn't understand, God doesn't demand that the believer trust him blindly. God doesn't demand blind faith. God invites the believer in that moment at the crossroads to lean on all that he has learned of God in the past and based on that knowledge to trust. So we today, as we are asked to trust God in the darkness of our confusion sometimes, can draw on our knowledge of God as the creator of all things as the controller of everything, as Isaiah reminded Israel. We can draw on our knowledge of God as the one who has never failed us yet. And based on what we already know of him, we can trust him in this new circumstance of darkness and confusion. So in light of God's challenge to us, in light of the evidence he has given us about himself, the decision is mine to make. Will I trust him in the dark? Or will I refuse to trust? Will I grow up? Or will I remain a spiritual infant? So you've prayed to God. You've asked him for what you feel you desperately need now. But God does not give you what you've asked for. He just does nothing, it would seem. Why? Could it be that in delaying an answer, he is setting aside what might have been good in order that you will receive that which he knows is better? And the challenge comes to you from God. I know you don't understand, but based on what you do know of me, will you trust me anyway in the darkness? And if you do, says God, you'll grow up. And it's when we grow up that we are ready to be instruments in God's hands. To be used by him so he can accomplish his great eternal plans and purposes through us. And this glory of being an instrument in God's hands will be infinitely greater than anything you may feel you have missed as a result of God not having answered your prayers. If you will permit me something from my own experience. On one occasion I remember praying to God over an extended period. There was something I wanted with all my heart. I was convinced that it was the best thing for me. And so I prayed, making my request to God. But nothing happened. God was silent. The opportunity passed, 
and I didn't understand. But in the end, I bowed to God's will and trusted God. And in God's time, eventually, God, listen, God gave me what I wanted, but not what I asked for. For what I asked for would not have given me what I wanted. And God knew it. So thanks to the all-knowing wisdom of God, not only was I kept from disqualifying myself from being an instrument in God's hands, but I learned a valuable lesson, and I grew up just a little bit. In the end, I had cause to thank God for unanswered prayer. So the question is this, can I... Can you trust God? Can you trust that God knows what he is doing? That it is best for us in the silence, in the darkness, in the confusion of unanswered prayer. I have a third question if you can bear it. In many parts of the world, It is the lot of believers to be called upon to witness for Christ in the midst of opposition. Even in the West, the likelihood of of opposition to the gospel is growing at an alarming rate. Where shall the believer find the courage he needs to witness to his Lord in such difficult circumstances? So here's the question. How should I pray in the face of opposition? There's a passage in Acts 4 which may prove helpful in searching for the answer. It's recorded in Acts 3, you remember, that the apostles healed a lame man on the steps of the temple. And this set the whole city talking and made the religious establishment exceedingly unhappy. Not because they had healed a lame man, but because they had healed him in the name of Jesus. And in Acts 4, we have the record of the arrest, interrogation, and release of the apostles by the Sanhedrin. We also have the account of how when the Sanhedrin released them, they warned the apostles in the most threatening terms never to speak of Jesus again. The apostles, of course, knew what they should do and told the Sanhedrin in no uncertain terms. They said, we will obey God rather than men. So this drew further threats from the Sanhedrin before they eventually released them. And the apostles were realist enough to know that to disobey the religious establishment could have very serious consequences for them. So what were they to do? Acts 4, 23 to 31 tells us what they should do. Listen as I read it. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, 
Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against you, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The apostles went back to their fellow believers and joined them in prayer. And this prayer is most instructive for anyone who is called upon to witness amid worldly opposition. It's illuminating that the apostles don't ask for God's protection. They never ask for deliverance from the consequences of their continued witness. They ask for two things. That God would give them boldness and that God himself would so act as to vindicate Jesus Christ. And that's remarkable. But what's even more remarkable is that before the apostles make those two requests, before they ask for courage for themselves or vindication for Christ, They begin with a preamble to their prayer. And it is the preamble that gives them the courage to present their prayer. It's also interesting that while the prayer lasts for two verses, the preamble occupies five, making clear where their emphasis lay. The preamble was twofold. Firstly, they they reminded themselves of the wonders of God's creation. Before they made their requests, the apostles first allowed the Holy Spirit to fill their minds and imaginations with the sense of the reality of God, of his supreme authority, and of his power as the creator of heaven and earth and all things. Sovereign Lord, you heard me read, sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. And there's a lesson here for us, is there not? When we fear the opposition of world rulers antagonistic to the gospel, we would do well to set aside our fears for a moment and first listen to the venerable prophet Isaiah as he writes in the 40th chapter of his prophecy. Do you not know, he says, speaking to people who were facing the animosity of of, of antagonistic authorities, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? How silly can you be, says Isaiah. It is he who sits alone above the circle of the earth. The inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted. Uh, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and and the tempest carries them away as stubble. Some of us are old enough to remember the evil rulers of yesterday. Hitler, Stalin, Ceausescu, Pol Pot, Chairman Mao, 
seemingly invincible monsters. But where are they now? All gone long since, and who even remembers? God is not impressed with the might of nations, nor of their rulers. And neither will we be if we first turn our eyes to him. The second part of their preamble taught them that God is in control. Christ had been crucified. This was uppermost in their mind. It had happened just a few weeks earlier. But as they pray here, they they are reminded that their Old Testament scriptures had prophesied exactly that these things would happen. And so they quote Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot, plot, plot in vain? The kings of earth uh, uh, set themselves and the rulers gathered themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. This, these things that had happened had not happened by chance. There wasn't some tragic accident. God was in control. Listen to what they conclude. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel. Why? To do what your hand and your plan had had predestined would take place. They realized afresh that God had planned and controlled even the opposition of the most powerful rulers of earth at that time. And that realization, as that realization gripped them, the Holy Spirit began to stir their hearts, to give them boldness and courage to face whatever awaited them, based on this rock-solid confidence that God is in final and absolute control, and that the strength of their enemies was as nothing by comparison. And it was the truth that the apostles learned through the Holy Spirit in the preamble to their prayer that gave them courage to offer the prayer itself. And so they are encouraged to come and ask for boldness for themselves and vindication for Jesus Christ. There is a lesson for us today, is there not? To face the opposition and threatening of antagonistic governments, wherever they may be found, is no small matter. To stand true to the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that it could cost life and liberty, calls for boldness beyond the strength of mere man. Even in our United Kingdom, It will not be long before the exclusive claims that Jesus Christ is the only way to God may result in believers falling foul of the law. And where shall we find the boldness as believers to face the mockery of the world, the persecution of antagonistic governments, or even death itself? Surely it will be by discovering in our day What the apostles discovered in theirs, that God, the great creator, is in absolute control of all things. And therefore, though the whole world stands against him, his will be the victory. 
Though the whole world rejects the claims of Christ to be the sovereign Lord, a day will come when every knee will bow to him. So then, how should we pray in face of worldly opposition? First, we must be convinced that the creator God is in absolute control of everything. And then we should pray with utter confidence, asking first that God, that God in his good time will vindicate his son. And then asking that until that day comes, we, his servants, will be given grace to stand for the truth unbowed, come what may. Why should I pray? It's the gateway to fellowship with God. Why does God not answer my prayer? Could it be that he is withholding what is good so that we may know something better? And how should I pray in the face of opposition? Convinced that God is sovereign. Pray that he will so act as to vindicate his son. And in the meantime, pray that we will stand unbowed in absolute trust in our sovereign Lord. May God grant us wisdom in these things for his glory and our good. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.